Hey everyone, this is the Leaders and Founders podcast with me, Adam Kinder, one of the co-founders at Gathered and Found and a co-creator here at Leaders and Founders. Um, yeah, just a, a quick personal message really to, to all of our listeners. Just thank you so much for all of the support that you gave us for season one. Um, yeah, we, we had pretty big ambitions and big plans for the podcast, but we've been really blown away by the support that we had through season one. Um, we ended up, I think, with 17 episodes with some of the, the most influential leaders in the industry today. Um, some great founders of some super successful businesses. Uh, you know, as I said before, we're now live in over 40 countries, which is just crazy. Uh, we never thought that we'd get there so quickly when we put the podcast together. Um, so just a real heartfelt message of, of thanks and, and please continue to, you know, pass the podcast, continue to mention it to friends, colleagues, and anyone that you think could potentially use some advice. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really excited. We've got an absolute, um, an absolutely fantastic episode for, for episode one of season two. So I was joined by Yelman Nordegren. So hopefully I've done him some justice with that name. Uh, excuse my, my British accent, but um, Yelmar is the CEO and co-founder of Karma. So Karma are a very, very exciting business. Originally based out of Stockholm, they now have offices in uh, Stockholm, London, and Paris. Um, and their journey has been fantastic. It's a real entrepreneurial story, which is why I'm really, really excited to, to bring this one to you guys. Um, so Yelmar, from a personal perspective, so he always wanted to be a doctor. Um, he used to code as a teenager, but but he's uh, admitted himself his engineers are far better at the code than, than he probably was. Um, you know, went to medical school, worked really, really hard to get through to medical school, trained as a doctor, and then went into work, um, you know, in some great positions within the healthcare system in Sweden. Um, but he just always had that kind of burning feeling, I think, for wanting to do more, wanting to innovate, which led him to his first startup, um, <clears throat> which was essentially helping with, you know, feedback uh, with uh, within hospitals in Sweden. Um, which eventually has, you know, in, in classic sort of startup fashion, led him to work with his co-founders. And then they really looked to see what they could do to, to create a successful business. Um, so Karma was never started as a food waste prevention business, a surplus business. They originally started... Um, to essentially provide a platform for deals, you know, providing great deals on surplus food, surplus clothes. And after a while, about 18 months in, they started to realize that they were getting great traction within the food industry. So they were really surprised. I think they had some really well-known and, and quite prestigious restaurants in Stockholm who signed up to use that platform, which is when, again, in true fashion of, of a great startup and, and great leaders, they pivoted to focus purely on the food industry. And it was only after really looking into it that they started to understand just how big the food waste problem is. Um, you know, there are 10 billion tons of food produced annually, and a huge, huge percentage of that is wasted. Uh, it actually costs around $1.2, $1.3 trillion per year um, to, to essentially you know, tackle food waste. So they really looked at what they could do to not only help you know, give something back to the planet and really do something for good, but also they looked at the business opportunity in how they could connect retailers, restaurants, you know, food chains with the consumer, which ultimately works out win-win for the consumer because you can get some amazing deals. They've now pivoted again. They have the Karma Box, which is a home food delivery box of, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables. It's, it's a great story. And, you know, I think from speaking with Yelmar and hopefully you get this as well, 
he's just a great guy. He's got a great founding team around him as well. And they've really started to grow the business. So they're around 80, 90 people now with big plans and, and ambitions to continue to do an amazing job. So I really, really enjoyed this one. It's an absolutely fantastic episode for, for episode one of season two. Um, he's a great guy, Yelmar. I'm sure you're going to get that. And what an exciting business. So if you haven't heard of Karma, <clears throat> please, please take a look. And yeah, see if you can get some deals. I'm confident if you live in you know London, Paris, Stockholm, there are going to be some amazing deals that you can get as a consumer. But that's enough from me. Without further ado, I'm going to pass straight through to Yelmar. But thanks everyone for listening in. So, hey Yelmar, welcome to the uh, the Leaders and Founders podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah, perfect. No, we um, as we were kind of saying just off air, we were speaking to, to your marketing team and, and you were one of the companies in Sweden we were really, really keen to, to sort of get on and just to understand more about your business. It looks like such a great company and there's loads of stuff I really, really want to go into and I'm excited to find out. But um, as I said, I've done you a quick intro. I never do them justice to be honest with you. So it's way better coming from, from you yourself. But just for, for all of the listeners, can you give us uh, just a bit of an intro to you and, and, and the business as well? Definitely. So, um, my name is Yalmar. It's a very weirdly poor international name. Um, I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of Karma. We help restaurants, grocery stores, cafes, and wholesalers to uh, sell their surplus food to consumers. Uh, and every time something is sold on our platform, we actually uh, learn better and better where the surplus is coming from and how we can prevent it in the first place. Uh, so it's a, it's both a short-term solution and a very long-term solution for how to ultimately end food waste as a whole. Perfect. And I think, you know, from just purely being ignorant, I guess, you know, food waste has kind of been in the background, I guess, for, for a little while. But even until I really looked on, on your, your website, I guess, I didn't realize just how big the issue actually is. Um, and mm -hmm. I think most people probably don't until you're actually told some of the the facts and the figures, but it's like a $1.2 trillion issue essentially from a waste perspective. And obviously the amount of emissions going into the environment and just the, the sheer amount of waste is, is huge, right? Yeah, it's, it's massive. I mean, it's 1.5 billion metric tons of food going to waste every year. And um, I mean, if you look from a, from a um, uh, emission standpoint, uh, food waste would be the third biggest uh, emitter, if you rank them by country, if food waste was a country, it would come right after the US and China. So I, I, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of benefits from solving it, not only like poverty or uh, living in, in, um, in food poverty, which is a, a very serious thing, even in, in developed countries. I think just making sure that we take care of the food produced would make a, an incredible difference to uh, developed and, and, uh, pre-developed countries alike. Yeah, sure. I know, I'm sure you've got some really ambitious plans, you know, for, for good on your roadmap as well, which, um, yeah, really keen to find out some of those are the ones that you can talk about at least. But, mm. um, but I think, you know, for, for the people listening, so many people, you know, have been in a position where maybe they've kind of changed careers or they've had that great idea that maybe startup founders or established, you know, business leaders as well. I think one of the things people are so interested in is, 
I guess, firstly, how did the idea come around? Because correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't the kind of first idea that you had for your startup, right? It kind of changed as you built it. Um, mm. But for people listening as well, you trained as a, as a professional doctor, right? So this isn't probably where you thought you'd be a few years back, I guess. <laughs> no, not really. Um, I think uh, if I'm to, to split those into two questions, like how, mm. how did I end up here and how yeah. did we end up where we are today? Um, from, from a personal uh, point, I think I ended up here just because I've always been curious to try new things. And um, I somehow always knew I wanted to become a doctor. So I uh, studied really hard to, to get into med school here in Sweden. And uh, during med school, um, I actually started to look around like, what can we do? Like wherever I ended up, if it was a primary care unit or an addiction A&E, um, there was always a lot of things that you would spot where you would say like, oh, this could be done differently and probably be more efficient. And I'm not saying that from out of hubris that I believe they could fix it, but it, mm-hmm. there's some component of like, um, I guess, uh, seeing the problem, but not understanding it fully that allows you to, um, dream about how it can be solved. So a lot of that was going on in my head. And I know that I had several, on several occasions just saw something and said like, Oh, I know that I could, you know, create a simple, I don't know, type form or a program or whatever to, um, to make this more efficient. Um, so, so my first startup actually came from solving, they wanted to, um, one of the primary care units I was at wanted to evaluate the doctors, uh, and they were going to bring in a firm to do like research on paper mm-hmm. um on like what did you think of of your visit today and i said that sounds ridiculous it's uh, we live in the 21st century we should be able to do this digitally and they sort of looked skeptically at me and i said what are you paying them and i think it was five thousand dollars or something mm. i said that's steep for a service i, I just yeah. blurted out like i'll do it for half <laughs> uh, and i had no idea what i was going to do but um that uh, ultimately became uh, my first startup, uh, which was uh, um, an on-site evaluation tool. So basically a serving tool that you put on an iPad and you can have it on-premise to evaluate whatever you wanted. And uh, yeah, that went from just like, I wanted to solve it for the clinic I was in uh, to um, spreading to more clinics and then ultimately to more industries. And all of a sudden we had... uh, uh, a lot of employees we were like trying to expand outside of sweden and raising capital and i honestly it just it sort of happened we we just always always stepped uh, forward and found ourselves in in uh, a new weird situation that we had to solve sure yeah yeah i think that's yeah i was gonna say i mean it's such a such a good story though and i think you know most great startups it comes from a fairly sort of simple place and that you just want to you know, automate the process or there's a solution which should just be easier to access, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, and so what happened with the, the kind of first startup? How quickly did it scale? Where did you get to? Um, and yeah, some of the successes, I guess, that you had. Um, I learned a lot about running in teams, uh, hiring, um, working with co-founders, um, you know, aligning on a vision, how important it is. You know, I, I remember early on, everyone said like, Oh, you need to have a very solid vision, mission, values. And we spent so much time, you know, trying to get our vision and mission and values down on paper. Um, 
failed a lot of times or you know took some cliche vision mission that we just said like oh this sounds great let's do this um and uh, there was a lot of like building the early cornerstones of a business that we did wrong and that um, those learnings then translated into being able to do it much quicker and much better uh, the other uh, time around. But it, I think it's also essential, regardless if it's your first startup or second startup or whatever, I think it's essential to do those things. Like I've been told a hundred times, like, this is what a vision needs to be like. But ultimately I had to fail at it myself in order to really understand why it has to be that way. Yeah. Um, not saying you have to like step on every single uh, uh, mistake or failure yourself, but I think that it's a, it's a steep learning curve that uh, I can really see the benefits of going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the, I mean, the, um, the serving tool, which was still around today and called Responster, and I'm, I'm still a, a passive owner in that. It's mm-hmm. run by one of the, one of the co-founders from back then, um, is, is uh, still doing really well. It's mostly used in enterprise uh, surveying. So uh, like uh, when uh, a DHL driver has delivered a package, uh, some of the infrastructure for uh, talking about back to headquarters, how it went, uh, is, is based on Responster. Uh, so um, it's, it's really an, an, uh, an integrated tool into a lot of products that you don't see. It's not a, it's not a customer-facing product in that sense. Um, I think there's still around 10 people uh, working on it. Again, like I'm a passive party right now, so I show up for the annual meetings. Uh, but uh, I'm really proud of what they've done and they keep scaling into like the, uh, the infrastructure and, and um, sort of the behind the scenes uh, of serving, which is really cool to see. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, from that, um, a lot of the people at Responster wanted to do something that was more consumer facing. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons that we, we actually started Karma was we started talking inside this company, like what, if we were to do something consumer facing, what would that be? Like is surveying software, what we dream of at night, like the problem that we want to solve? And for, for a lot of people, the answer was no. It was something that you know, fell into our lap and that we kept developing. Um, so we took the time to sit down and say, like, if, what are we excited about? Uh, what if we could build that? And um, we came up with, with a simple idea, which was we need something that's, we want it to be global. We want it to be scalable. Um, and what's that to us? That was um, the universal feeling of, making a good deal if you like that's that's uh it really is universal like it's the same a person making a good deal in in japan will react the same way as in canada um so we said like it has to have that as a cornerstone whatever it is we're building and we started building a a deal platform where we could move everything surplus so clothes um food whatever Mm -hmm. um and that platform took off really well but it was very you know all over the place uh it's uh, it's very different user groups that wants to save food versus that wants to save say clothes sure. um so so like going into where we are today it was much more of a narrowing down like stopping doing a lot of things and say like we are going to do one thing really really well sure um 
And again, that's something that people had been telling us for years that <laughs> focus on one thing. And we were like, no, 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 we can do everything. <laughs> uh, but so, so that was, uh, that was another sort of like, we knew it, but now we, we really understood it. Um, and we were able to focus on only that. Yeah, perfect. And I think, yeah, you know, as, as you mentioned, so many people, you need to have that niche and you need to be amazing at what you do, I guess. And obviously your niche is a huge niche. Technically, you know, it's a massive issue globally. Um, and it's the same with mistakes, as you said, you know, when you started the, the business, I'm sure you had some great advisors and some great peers who forewarn you about some of the problems you may have and what to maybe look out for. But when you're in the moment and you're building your company, it's only when you experience them yourself that sometimes you realize, I guess, oh yeah, that was actually really good advice. <laughs> but you don't understand it until it happens to you sometimes. No, um, definitely. So how long was, was Karma, you know, looking at multiple sort of areas apart from just food until you focused down on that? I think from, from when we founded the company in 2015, for the first year, um, we, in the middle of 2015 to the middle of 2016, we were doing all kinds of verticals. So it was more of a deal platform than a food waste platform. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere in the middle of 2016, we realized that we need to focus on something, but we didn't know what yet. And we were actually going looking into clothes more than food waste because that's that in itself it's it's an entire different podcast but it's <laughs> it's a huge issue with with fast fashion and the way you sort of have to destroy clothes in order to introduce a new line um yeah. but we actually saw that we had restaurants that had joined the platform and were uploading their own food at the end of the day mm-hmm. uh, as as an offer and this was some great restaurants in Sweden. And we said like, but if, if these have this problem, like if they have food left over at the end of the day, this must be a bigger issue. And we started looking into the, the global problem that is food waste and found all of these key statistics that a trillion dollars each year or 1.5 billion tons of food is wasted each year. Sure. And we were just horrified by the magnitude of it. Uh, and it's one of those problems that when, when you see it, you think like, surely someone has solved this or like have a great idea that's underway, but we couldn't find anything. Sure. Uh, and the ones, the solutions that um, existed and that in, in still exist today, they're all short term. They're all about like, oh, let's just throw this out the window or, you know, let's give this to a consumer. We don't care about what happens to it after that. So yeah we we saw that like there's this huge need uh to not just pro- prohibit surplus once it's produced or make sure that it's consumed but actually make sure that it doesn't occur in the first place because according to refed.org which is uh, a good source of information on food waste um there's about 10 times the value from preventing food waste rather than producing it and and reselling it so like if if you can imagine the the trillion dollars that are going to waste you could be making 10 trillion dollars from making sure that it's not produced in the first place yeah yeah of course and and i think you know the, the kind of message or one of the first messages i guess that you get just from your landing page is that you're obviously looking to actually do good in the world you know actually help try and make the, the planet a better place but you know you you're very entrepreneurial and you saw the business sort of uh, opportunity i guess in that um mm. and you know even from my perspective I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie me and my wife you know we, we do like nice restaurants and stuff 
we like cooking at home, even from a personal level. And I know this is obviously more aimed at, you know, businesses and restaurants, et cetera. We waste so much fresh food, you know, so much, unfortunately, it ends up in the waste bin. And every week it's like a bit of a, it's probably a hobby now. We just look at how much money we waste every week, I guess, on food. And I've often thought, you know, in restaurants, you know, if you have, you know, a pretty extensive menu, there is so much food which isn't going to get used. Mm. Um, but I guess that's also the beauty of not just focusing on one area. For example, if you just focused on clothes and you hadn't opened it up to food, you would have never had this opportunity and it never would have come to you, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think you have to, you have to realize that it's very unlikely that you'll start a business and be like pinpoint accurate on where you're going to end up in uh, by the end of it. So sure. starting with a wider funnel and then saying like, we are going to find exactly where mm. on this scale, we're going to drill down and become the experts. I don't think that's a bad idea. Some people feel sort of stressed that they need to know everything before they start. And I've, I've never seen that be the case, even though some core aspects of the business model remains, there's usually a lot of stuff changing along the way. Um, yeah. But, but for, uh, for the food at home issue, I mean, one of our uh, best partners, especially in the UK is, is Olio, which is doing basically what we're doing for restaurants and grocery stores. They're doing for, uh, everyone in their homes, which is just amazing. And mm. it's uh, maybe we'll get to that later, but, but this pandemic has definitely proven that, um, you know, collaborating with other actors in the same sphere mm. uh, has proven so beneficial for, uh, for everyone, including the sort of end user. Yeah, of course, definitely. And yeah, I think, you know, so many people have, you know, lent on support of, I guess, you know, potentially, you know, competitors or people working in a very sort of similar field, I guess. But we've, mm. we've seen so much collaboration and so many companies have really looked to, to help each other out and try and give each other a platform where it's possible, I guess. Yeah. So it's good. We, we've seen a lot of good that's come out of it, you know, in what's been a pretty, a pretty average time for most people, I guess. Um, so, I mean, and just, just kind of on that topic, I mean, how did you guys kind of pivot. I know in Sweden, obviously, the, the lockdown wasn't as intense as, as in other cities and countries. Um, but how, how did that look like for you as a company? Were you pretty flexible before that? Was it quite a, a period that you had to adapt to? It was definitely a period of adaption. I think the, the whole COVID situation uh, forced us to move even faster on a lot of initiatives. We usually consider ourselves uh, pretty fast and quick when we make decisions, like going from one week to another that we might do this to like, okay, let's execute on it. And then we're live two weeks later. Sure. Um, but this really put that to the test. So um, a lot of the footfall disappeared overnight. And as you can imagine, given we're a, we're a function or a service where you buy a surplus and then you pick it up on location, mm -hmm. that was a, a huge issue for us. So we managed to, I think in two weeks time, we managed to build an internal system for coordinating deliveries mm -hmm. and partner with third party um, um, delivery firms to be able to have the same buying experience from a consumer perspective and then having the food delivered to your home. Sure. Uh, that was uh, stressful, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a very steep learning curve. And you, you gained a lot of respect for delivery companies for what they do. It's incredibly complicated to coordinate that. <laughs> um, uh, so it was a humbling experience. Um, sure. Also, some of the, one of the best things that I think we did was 
uh, we looked at, okay, what's the world going to look like from now on? Because uh, <laughs> the one thing I bring with me from, from my medical training is, is probably that I, I have a, hopefully an above average view of what a pandemic looks like. And it's not something that comes and goes in two weeks. So sure. um, as, as we can see now, there's a long-term effect on the markets, even though we've, we've seen great recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think shopping behavior and eating behavior is going to be impacted for a very long time. So yeah. one of the introductions we did was uh, the Karma Box uh, mm-hmm. in both uh, the UK and in Sweden. Yeah. And uh, we've, for years, we've had farms and wholesalers reach out to us and say, hey, we have all of this surplus. Can you help us move it? And most of the time we've had to say no because we don't have the logistics or um, we're already at capacity with like getting our users to get the food from restaurants and cafes in town. Um, but now we said, sure, we can help you. Uh, so we, we found a place where we could uh, repack the... Uh, repack our own boxes and made sure that farms from across the countries uh, were delivering um, their uh, ugly fruit and veg or surplus fruit and veg uh, to us. And uh, we repacked them in a weekly box that we delivered to uh, the doorstep of mm. uh, customers. And we've seen such a huge adoption of that product. Yeah. Um, so there's so many people that are now subscribers to the Karma Box, either weekly or biweekly, which, um, I mean, it's, it's heartwarming to see that people are willing to, like, uh, obviously, even though it's surplus, the, the most expensive parts is, like, the labor and the transport. Um, so um, uh, it's, it's just heartwarming to see so many people get together and say, like, hey, we recognize this problem. Let's help out. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, no, no, it's it's fantastic, and I guess you know through um, you know sometimes the the bad situations, you know obviously new ideas are born, and you know I think it's definitely not a word, but the pivotability of of a company and the startup, you know their ability to adapt and you know look mm. at different avenues really sets obviously very successful companies apart from those who maybe aren't as innovative. Um, mm. And you know if you take food as well, I mean you know there are so many companies in the UK, you know, businesses like, like Gusto, for example, you know, companies which, you know, send you the, the food. So many people are really concentrating on food now. Um, mm. And I mean, as I said, me and my wife, we, we love to cook anyway. We, we think we're okay, but we're probably not as good as we think we are. But um, so many people really care about the food. And, you know, I think there's been so much uh, kind of publicity and obviously with things like, you know, climate change, global warming, people hopefully are starting to kind of switch onto that. And just looking at, getting great great produce i guess and, and it's you, you guys are right at, at the heart of that and it's cheaper for people and you're helping out the the you know the, the wholesalers and, and as you said the farmers so you guys sound like a really awesome company <laughs> you're doing thank some really you. great stuff <laughs> thank you I, I hope we are no but i I've, i mean that's the um, that's sort of the the fun part of doing this because while we were initially driven by, okay, we're going to create a great business. Managing to get sustainability into that core yeah. uh, has made such a difference in terms of like employee retention, uh, the number of candidates that apply to work at Karma. And yeah. it's, it's just been, uh, you know, it's been really, really good for building a culture that's more than just like, okay, here's the quarterly revenue targets. Let's go for it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And that's one of the things I'm really keen to get on to now because, you know, culture is so important for, for any business. Um, mm. 
Some are really good at it, some companies. Others, it takes a bit of time, I guess, to really find out, you know, what your culture is, the brand you want to be known for. But yeah, I mean, as you've mentioned there, the fact that it's around sustainability and you're building a successful company off the back of actually doing very good to so many people. Mm. You've mentioned as well, you've seen more applicants getting in touch. Is that, do you think that's been part of the success that people want to join essentially a good journey and, and actually make a difference? I think if I, if I am to listen to a lot of the candidates, they usually find karma from, from looking for uh, having a, work where they can make an impact mm -hmm. uh, that's that's what a lot of people are looking for what that means exactly i'm not sure i think there's a lot of great talks about like should you work with impact is that a great sort of driver for you um and i think that the most important thing when we when we take them through our pretty intense uh interview process is is basically do they understand that there is a way where you can combine business and sustainability in sort of this perfect match where you can feel for both sides I think it's it's admirable to um, to have this the sustainable mindset but we are really pushing to say it's the the unison of the two like being both business minded and sustainable that's that's what we're looking for and um, really it doesn't work to have just one of them because the the sort of decisions we have to make and the the fast paced environment requires you to be able to sort of switch between the two sure. um but it's it's led to a lot of sort of diversity in the applicants which is so much fun there's been uh, people from across the world applying a lot of them especially now during the the uh, pandemic where people uh, are working remote anyways and taking the opportunity to apply from Indonesia or uh, <laughs> Papua New Guinea. So we have a lot of really interesting applicants that we like, we try to make that work with the culture that we've built. Yeah. Uh, but obviously it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's humbling to see that it's, it's working. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I think even just from speaking with you, I mean, it's the kind of company that I think so many people would love to work with, you know, and it sounds super innovative as well. I mean, to, to take us back to kind of the first sort of year or two. So how many co-founders are there? Four co-founders? Four co-founders, yes. Cool, perfect. So, I mean, first and foremost, one thing I'm, I'm, I'm always really intrigued in is, you know, intrigued by, sorry, is how people kind of find their, their place in the company, I guess. You know, mm. sometimes you have somebody who's maybe a little more technical, somebody's more, you know, kind of on the marketing side. And I know you used to, you programmed as a, as a teenager, right? You used to do some coding when you were a child. I did. Uh, so I think I was useful in the beginning as a programmer. I, now I'm replaced <laughs> by brighter minds when it comes to coding. Programmers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but, but I mean, to me, that was really important because if, if we're going to be a food company and a tech company, I think it's, it's easy to say like, oh, we're a tech company because we have an app, but um, it's, it's one of those uh, decisions where if, if you're a bunch of technical co-founders, which in this case we were, we're able to maintain sort of technical integrity in the company as you scale. Sure. Uh, because it's very easy to say like, oh, we're happy with a team of five developers or 10 developers. Like they can do uh, continue development on these platforms that we're already at. But I think like pushing the technical boundaries and going for innovation as one of the core attributes of the company, I think that's, um, you need to stay on your toes and be as agile as you were in the beginning of, of like starting up the company. I think 
you hear that echoing from a lot of companies. You might not like them or not, but uh, mm-hmm. um, like Amazon saying, like it's always day one, and uh, Elon Musk saying that speed is everything when it comes to SpaceX and Tesla. Like it's it's just it seems to be the common trait to like always treat uh, everyone and ev- every team and everyone uh, as sort of we just started this. What do we do to be relevant? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, but, and I think, um, you know, you know, and if you don't have that approach, you know, you you lose some passion, I guess, and it's the desire to to innovate and you know look for new opportunities, look at different ways that you can help people. That's ultimately how you then you know create new revenue streams and you design new products. For example, the you know the Karma Box. If you guys are just happy doing what you're doing, you would have mm-hmm. never done that, right? Exactly, and I think from a from a co-founder perspective, to also look back to what you first said, it's it's never clear who does what. I mean, you can obviously sit down and say, I'm doing this, you're doing this. But then if you move at, an, uh, at a fast speed, you should break those boundaries pretty quickly. If, yeah. if you're 12 months in, you're doing exactly what you said on, you would do on paper 12 months earlier, then you're probably not moving as fast as you could. Sure. Um, and you're probably not trying to sort of bend and break some of the rules that you've set up for yourself, which... Um, might be stressful or might feel chaotic, but it's also the thing that makes the the company stay relevant. Um, I think um, I spoke to John Chambers, who's the ex-CEO of Cisco, who said that like, oh, they've had uh, a myriad of of competitors around them that have been so much bigger and, you know, so innovative for a while, but ultimately it was innovation that killed all of them. Uh, If they didn't, if they didn't have the sort of, if, if they didn't keep innovation uh, intact, uh, then it ultimately brought the company to its knees because they were no longer relevant. The market is always running away from you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, 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 100%. And, you know, that's also where you see so many companies, you know, who seem to have great ideas and a great vision and product, but ultimately just never reach the success of businesses that are really I guess just really value that innovation. Um, mm. And, you know, so someone once said to me, you should always, should always pretty much be like 10 to 20% minimum outside of your comfort zone. Because if you're constantly comfortable, you're never pushing yourself, right? And you're never trying to do new things. Yeah. I'm sure you're way more than 20% out of your comfort zone at most times, probably. Um, but um, so, so when, when you started to, to scale the company, so you're, you're not too far off 100 people now, right? You like sort of 80, 90 people? Yes, exactly. Yeah, cool. Uh, so, so um, I mean, it's been, uh, uh, again, to, to look back to John Chambers, just because I mentioned him, he said that you go through different phases of the company when you're like the family size, uh, and then, which is maybe up to 10 people. Beyond that, it becomes very difficult for everyone to have a one-to-one relationship with each other that you continuously develop. And you have to go into a different phase where you're, uh, more of a tribe where you have a close relationship to some and a more distant relationship to others. And it sounds, I mean, there's a lot of startup uh, founders that say like, no, we're going to be a family forever. Mm. And, uh, or some people that say like, we're 10 people, but we're going to treat each other as if we were, you know, a 200 people organization. And mm, yeah. I mean, I think neither of them work. You have to have sort of a dynamic leadership development over time, both in, in terms of team size, but also, um, within teams, one, one of the things that we've based our culture heavily on at Karma uh, is called UGL, uh, uh, which is a Swedish 
military setup. It sounds way more drastic than it is. Sounds intense. Um, <laughs> it's it's not as intense as it sounds. It's, it was developed in the 80s by the Swedish Armed Forces, and it's heavily based on um, uh, Susan Whelan and Bruce Tuckman. The the different you've probably heard about the forming, storming, norming, performing. Sure. sure. Uh, so so it's it's heavily based. Yeah, on it's that. heavily based around that. The forces, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, perfect. And I think so many. You know, again, it's. I think so many people that I've spoken to over the years, you know, when you're in that found, when you are a founder, you know, you grow the company. And as you said, it's four of you, then it's 10, then 20, 40, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You know, there are so many different hurdles which come at like the extra 10 or 20 people, I guess. And mm. once you get to say 30, I'm sure you had, you know, scalability issues perhaps, or, you know, you then had to understand, cool, how do we get to 50 now? Which new people do we need to put in place? But I think most companies that have done that successfully, they understand the need and the desire, I guess, to have a good leadership team in place and to, to yeah. make the business scalable. Is that something you obviously realized pretty quick? You had to have additional layers and you had to have the maturity to, to actually pass on the, you know, the, the responsibility, I guess. Yeah, 100%. I think it's, we realized that, um, uh, pretty early on, I wouldn't say we, we, you know, avoided all the mistakes. On the contrary, I think we probably stepped on a few, uh, in a few difficult situations. But um, I think what what ultimately we we centered around this, and this goes back to the whole UGL setup that we use. Um, it's it's really about like trying to develop both the the company as a whole, where you have to have these like layered. You don't have to have it, but we prefer to have the layered organization where there is a hierarchy, but as Swedes, we're not that hierarchical. Uh, it's not like someone comes in and says like, I'm one layer above you. So yes. if you don't do what I say, I'm going to you know, punish mm. you. That's um, the sort of carrot stick thing is, is sort of a, an old leadership model that we're trying to go away from where it's much more about a leader should be, and this might sound like... Uh, just uh, you know, as something that everyone says, but uh, the whole inspirational part of thing uh, of being a leader is is super important. And a leader's job is basically to take your team, whether it's um, a two-person team or a ten or eleven-person team, is to take that team through the journey of becoming an actual like functional team where leadership isn't that necessary anymore. Sure. I've seen so many. Um, founders for other startups around me that have uh, said like oh we want to build autonomous teams mm. and that's great but what is an autonomous team i think one one of the core things is that like um imagine that you're going to like a cocktail party and you get to, you have 10 people at the cocktail party mm. if you were to say like oh this is 10 you're 10 amazing people uh i think we should be a team and everyone agrees like now you're a team if you say like, let's be autonomous, that would never work. Like you, or, I mean, it would be amazing if it did, but um, you would have, I think you have as a leader, it's your responsibility to guide the team to a state where they can be autonomous, Sure. which is usually, usually a pretty rocky road. Um, because like, again, like with the cocktail party example, I think the leader in this case is the host. And if you want anything to happen at a cocktail party, the leader usually had to clink their glass and say like, let's move into the other room. And it's like clear instructions and everyone listens. And it's, 
and and then from there on out the more you get to know each other the less of a leader that person needs to be it's sort of you can you can go towards that state but i think there's this startups always want to to get there so quickly and without doing an effort they just want to be autonomous out of nowhere and i think that's um that's something we've been working incredibly much with at karma sure and i guess sometimes you can't have full autonomy it's just not possible you know because if yourself as a leader everybody wants to work in an autonomous way and you want to have you know the freedom to sort of innovate and run with new ideas you know from an engineering perspective i guess have the freedom and you know trust to implement new technologies to, to try new things you know different ways of working but if everyone who joins say you hired 10 software engineers to tomorrow if they could just work on whatever they wanted it wouldn't gel and you you have to have some form of instruction i guess at least at the beginning and then as you said i guess it's around trust it's around the understanding of the teams to fully understand the business and the culture and what's expected and then that starts to develop over time i think um but yeah, it's hard to implement that from day one straight away. And it's pretty much impossible, I think, for most companies. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of, I think a lot of people assume that if you start a company with a couple of people you know, let's say in our case, we were four co-founders. Mm. We obviously gelled pretty well because we've, uh, we had some sort of history together. We were fairly alike. It's not that complicated to have uh, relationships between four people. It's mm. fairly easily managed. But once you get that to 10 and a lot of them are new and you don't have any history, you have to realize that it's a very active uh, work process to get everyone aligned and to get to the level where you trust everyone with. It's not about blindly trusting also. It's about making sure that you you have what you need between everyone to be able to have a fully developed relationship to be autonomous. So, I mean, um, this is something that we try to explore as often as we can at Karma because you can, you're never really done with building a, a fantastic team. You can be always be better. Sure. Um, so I think that's, um, that's also one of the things that we've, uh, really, really, uh, pushed over the years. Yeah, perfect. And I mean, even from, I don't know if you've read um, Sapiens, you know, just looking at the, the very basic way that humans interact with, with, with each other, mm. it's physically not possible to know everyone when you get to a certain size of a group, you know, and that goes from the kind of small tribe to, you know, the, the bigger tribes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that from speaking with you, I don't think you're going to sit at this level for ages. I can see you having a pretty big company, you know, hopefully in multiple locations. Like you physically can't be there as the CEO of the company, you know, right? So you have to have those layers which, which you trust. And yeah, I guess it, and it can be hard to find that because you're looking for people who really buy into your vision, you know, think the same way, but I guess are also going to bring their own take on things, I guess, as well. Um, yeah. what, what do you look for, I guess, as as a business, you know, from people, whether it's from an engineering perspective, you know, marketing, you know, operations, what, what would you say? And there's going to be no perfect answer to this, but what does a karma, um, karma employee look like? What do you look for in, in people? Uh, oh, wow. Uh, a lot of uh, independent thinking uh, and independent decision making, like someone who, um, who understands that if they come in sort of as, uh, as someone who are willing to shake things up a little bit, but not in a way that it disrupts things, mm -hmm. um, a bit of a troublemaker, but a reasonable troublemaker. Yeah. And, um, 
that kind of hacker mentality that you want to do it in the right way and <laughs> exactly you you can still team play uh, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. not the sort of lone wolf mentality at all um so i think one of the the uh, my favorite questions in the interview process is blatantly stolen from from peter thiel the, mm. um what's something that's an important truth for you that most people don't agree with you on Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and having gone through like hundreds and hundreds of candidates by now, I, in the beginning, I didn't really see the value of it. But now it's sort of the, the dividing question where like, are you someone who is going to give me a, you know, non thought through or, you know, cliche answer on that question? Uh, or are you someone that is actually trying to think a little bit and, and have an original thought based on your experiences? Mm. Uh, because I think everyone can have it, but not everyone wants to. Uh, of course. Yeah, and I think qu- questions like that are so, so interesting. Um, you know, whether you're, you know, a CIO or a graduate coming, you know, out of university, everybody has their own experiences, you know, personal um, or professional. But I think questions mm. which really sort of get to the heart of the person are so important. Um, I remember one of, one of my last businesses, I was interviewed by... Um, what I took as a pretty intimidating South African guy. Um, you know, he was quite pretty, pretty intense, you know, quite straight to the point. And one of the questions which he asked me, which kind of, kind of sideswiped me a little bit was like, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made? And it's, it's a question which is asked so much, but, and to be fair, I gave a very cliche standard kind of, I'm going to try and make myself sound not as bad um, as, as maybe my biggest mistake actually was, but he actually just said like, like, you know, cut the bullshit basically. What, like, what have you actually kind of done really badly wrong? And it really gets you kind of thinking, but I guess it really allowed him to, to understand me on a level and where I'm coming from. And I guess it's just understanding what drives you as a person, you know, whether it's, um, you know, you're, you're understanding your motivations, what you want to be known for. And I guess whether you can kind of adapt and, if you've actually learned from some of your experiences as, as well, are really important. Um, yeah. Like everyone makes mistakes, but if you keep making mistakes and you never change, then yeah, it's yeah. probably something you should switch up, right? <laughs> yeah. You, if you don't really reflect on what it was that went wrong, then you're just going to repeat it endlessly. Yeah, of course. But, but that's, um, that's a very, um, I think we dig very much into like, what are the wrongs you've done? What are the things you regret? And so I remember... Uh, when we went into the French market uh, and interviewed uh, uh, some of the general manager candidates, one of them uh, said after the interview that like, oh, I felt like I spent an hour at the at the shrink. <laughs> and I said like, that's a perfect review. Thank you. <laughs> because honestly, I think that's like the most important thing with, with working with the at least to me, we're the people closest to me. I need to understand what their values are, what their fears are, and what they their dreams are. Sure. Because if I'm going to guess that, then there'll be a lot of friction, especially when you try to move fast. But if I know that, like this person that I'm working with here, their biggest fear is, you know, over promising and under delivering, then I'll actually spend time making sure that that promise that we make to each other is is uh, just right, rather than you know glance it over and, and uh, shrug when, uh, when they ask for help. So it's, it's um, I think getting to that level with the person is absolutely essential uh, in a team. And 
we try to you know force people together not during the pandemic but <laughs> force people <laughs> yeah. together to to uh to get to that point you know be be comfortable being uncomfortable yeah of course and there are so many things you know if you read much of daniel pink's work you know around intrinsic motivation extrinsic it's pretty it can be quite common i guess to just assume that everybody wants the same things but you know some people and from my perspective i guess which has been pretty much purely sales in, in my career you assume that everybody wants to get you know a great mention in the company meeting you know they mm. want to just earn as much money as possible um i've had people in my teams one guy was really this is a mistake that i definitely made he was much kind of quieter guy and um he'd had a fantastic week so we got him on stage in the company meeting and gave him a great shout out and afterwards he was like please never do that again like i actually felt so uncomfortable up there like i hate being the center of attention and it was a massive um you know just kind of an oversight that, that i made that i assumed that he wanted that you know but he would have much happily just gone home and just gone back to his girlfriend and never <laughs> never yeah. kind of been seen by anyone so so yeah i think if you you need to understand people on a deep level 100 percent um do you do you get that right more often than not do you think now over with experience of hiring and growing the team yeah i, I mean i hope so <laughs> time will tell right but no I, I there's a huge difference in sort of what we look for and how we look for it um when compared to starting the business i've also i've i've been sitting in uh on um some of my friends have started uh, companies now and I've just offered to sit in on sort of the, some of the first hires just because they're usually very critical for what culture you develop. Sure. And it's been really interesting because I can see very much in what they're doing, how we were doing it a couple of years back. And it's sort of this, like you want people to work with you so bad because this oh, is yeah. a new thing. And like, Oh, I have no, no, I have no power here. I can't ask them to, I can't set terms or ask them to be in a certain way. I just, I should just be happy if they want to come work uh, for me or with me. Um, and I think that is sort of uh, where, where it starts to become a slippery slope. You need to very early on say like, what is it that you want? Because the, the next person you take in is going to shape the culture significantly. Sure. Um, so especially in the early days, like try to ask yourself, like, do you want to build a company where everyone's partying together five or seven days a week? Or do you want a company where it's, um, you know, sustainability is the key metric and everyone should go out and plant trees together on Saturdays. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, if you look at the extreme version of your company, you're probably going to end up somewhere yeah. from where you are now to there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think we, we've seen this so, so often with, you know, with, with sales companies, a lot with financial businesses that we work with as well, not maybe sort of super kind of innovative fintechs, but like unbiased interviewing. Um, so we, I, I had some training with, with a psychologist where just breaking down how I, I interviewed people, it was kind of one-sided and you kind of look for one thing that you assume that you want and you think people should have. Mm. Um, but when I started changing that, it's quite a common tendency. I think if you like someone and if there's a great personality, like that's obviously important, I think, you know, to have a great relationship sometimes, but sometimes you maybe hold back on questions, you know, completely, um, you know, subconsciously where you think, oh, I probably won't ask that because that might make me not rate them as much as a candidate perhaps, you know? So mm -hmm. it's really important, yeah, to, to have a pretty clean slate, I think, you know, be completely open and ultimately you need diversity, right? You can't have a company of the exact same people. It's going to take 
a different blend of personalities of backgrounds experiences to make it successful yeah, definitely and i think that on that point it's really important to train people that you've brought on to hire more people uh, so that you don't have the same sort of source for people coming in even though uh, i think it's either me or elsa um, uh, who's uh, coo and president i mean uh, it's one of us who always have sort of a veto but nowadays it's more uh, of a check-in that like this is not a crazy person. It rarely is, especially sure. when they've gotten that far in the, in the process. And uh, it's just nice to get a little face-to-face and, and get to know the person super briefly because they, they're usually, they usually end up joining Karma at, at that point. Um, and um, I think it's just so important to sort of hand over the recruiting as well so you can get more diversity. Because like you're saying, I don't think a lot of people realize how biased you are. Uh, in in uh, what you look for and how you look for it, etc. Even even though it's develop it develops over time, it's it's still very difficult to you know completely change it. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. And I guess that that makes that makes the individual, I suppose. You know, in terms of what yeah. kind of hits a chord with you. But there's some so many basic things. Even like you know, if somebody's from like the town that you're from. When you see a profile, you think, oh, they're from where I'm from. They're probably the same as me. Oh, we're gonna have a really good chat. And you go into it thinking one thing and it's like oh no this is completely different to how i expected it so there's some really crazy things on a basic perspective that you sometimes don't realize yeah um so what's what's kind of next i mean where are you guys now how obviously coming out of you know lockdown in, in most cities you know things are hopefully getting back to normal the mm. uk we've had the the help out to, to eat out uh, scheme where monday through wednesday restaurants have had discounts so Every single restaurant has been packed, which is great to see. Um, socially distanced packing out, I should say, but um, hopefully we're getting back into that process now where it's getting a little bit more back to normal, definitely in hospitality. You know, I'm really keen to see to see that obviously improve consistently. I mean, where, where do you guys fit into that? Where are you kind of taking things and what, what's next for you, I guess? So we're also coming back uh, with uh, a lot of the partners that have uh, been shut down during the lockdown are, are all coming back. So we're slowly but steadily uh, going back to the levels that were pre-pandemic, which is, is nice to see. Um, on top of that, we're now coming out with the Karma Box that have had sort of much, much greater um, uh, impact than we would have imagined uh so we're we're coming out with an extra <laughs> a new business almost yeah, yeah. that fits inside the whole um what we want to do for the food value chain which is we want to find and eliminate food waste throughout the whole food value chain mm. uh because it's hidden everywhere and it's in different parts in different countries uh so it makes total sense for us to to understand where where the wholesale and farm waste comes from and what we can do about it as well. Sure. Um, the long term for us is definitely, we've built now a massive data set of what's being wasted when and where and what are the odds of moving it to someone. So, uh, you know, the, the dream for us is really to become the, the gold standard of food waste prevention. Mm -hmm. uh, so using this data, which we're doing now with a couple of partners to be able to predict when food waste is to happen and what are the odds of us being able to move it. So mm -hmm. we can have a dynamic production of food throughout the day rather than overproducing and then just fingers crossed that we don't end up with a lot of it at the end of the day. Sure. Um, 
um, also just helping, you know, if you're a small restaurant owner and you're doing, let's say, only Caesar salad, uh, then <laughs> weird concept, but uh, let's say that exists. Um, <laughs> Pretty niche. Yeah, very, very niche, <laughs> but, but satisfies a very targeted customer group. Sure. Um, so what they would usually do, even if they have a small menu, they're, you, when, when you're new, you, you want to focus on the operations mm-hmm. and you forget that like Monday to f- through Friday doesn't look the exact same for you, especially if you have multiple menu items. Maybe you have a variation of the Caesar salad as well. Um, <laughs> then uh, you would definitely have variation in there in like how much surplus you have, which ultimately translates to like how much should you pre-produce on a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning. But what most of them do today is just like, ah, let's do 100 each weekday and then 80 each weekend day. Sure. Um, so I think that's the, that's the dream come true right there, making sure that we help small businesses optimize their, the way they work. I mean, ultimately... The biggest winner for that is is uh, the, the planet, but it's also the small business owner. It makes it much, much more reasonable to uh, to run a small business. Yeah, of course. And I guess, as you said, it's about the education of that process. Um, yep. you know, and, and to be fair, it must be pretty difficult, right? And, you know, <laughs> whenever you go to a restaurant and you really want something and it's not on the menu, it's like, ah, oh, I really wanted that. And it's kind of disappointing, but... You obviously understand it's obviously gone right but yeah. the flip to that is there is obviously so much waste and i guess if you can educate you know chefs or restaurants you know chains just to focus on what you actually should be producing mm. you know, through data and through metrics you know it, it's always a bit of um you know it, it's kind of the unknown i guess until you can sit someone down and say no, these are the figures. We've done this in Stockholm, Paris, London with this many hundred or thousand restaurants. You should be doing this. That education piece is, I guess, where you're going to make a huge impact on a long-term basis as well. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the, the holy grail of food waste right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus one thing that we, I don't think we even mentioned is that we're, we're one of the few platforms that actually show you what you're getting. I think you, you mentioned like, if you want something, that's the thing you want. You don't want to say like, oh, they don't have the Caesar salad. Oh, I'm fine with getting a smoothie. That's, that's, a, that's the garbage proposal. So, I mean, uh, we're one of the few platforms where you can actually see like, I'm getting a Caesar salad. That's the thing that's uh, about to go to waste. And I'm saving that from going to waste. Sure. Whereas almost everyone else is doing this like blind approach where um, you're getting something. Box. Yeah, a random box. Or, and I mean, to us, that's, uh, that's just not the way to do it. <laughs> From a consumer's uh, perspective. Uh, yeah. And from a, yeah. yeah, exactly. And as a consumer, like if you get a good box, you might think, oh, great, I've actually had a bit of a touch here, I suppose. But mm. as soon as you get a bad one, it's like, oh, I'm probably not going to use that again. So that's not long-term retention from a customer perspective either. No, and also from like, if you actually want to solve the problem and eat the food waste, which is a fantastic way that we can solve it by, uh, then if you have a 20%, so let's say that 80% of the boxes or bags or whatever are great, then the 20% are still being probably thrown away because you get it and you're like, oh, I'm not gonna eat this and it has short expiration dates. So it's, you're probably gonna throw it away. And I think that's just like, that that literally goes against for why this is being done. So it's, um, no, it's a, it's a, it's a long road ahead, but it's one that's really worth walking, so. 
Perfect. No, no, it, it sounds fantastic. And um, yeah, I mean, I've mentioned Karma to, to a number of friends in London as well who didn't know about it. Loads of people I know are signing up and I think it's kind of win-win, right? So um, I'm really excited to, to see where you guys take it. Um, I really want a Caesar salad now, by the way. Um, I've spoken <laughs> about it so much, I'm going to have to go and get some some ingredients. <laughs> but, Funny you should mention, I just opened a niche restaurant. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Perfect. I'll have to fly to Stockholm to, to get it. Um, no, no, no. Uh, but look, I, I appreciate just kind of a couple of wrap-up things, I guess. So obviously yeah. headquartered in Stockholm, you have um, an office in, in London and, and Paris. You have obviously people on the ground or... Yes. Perfect. Stockholm, what, London and Paris. Fantastic. Obviously, global domination, I guess, it would be great. And that's kind of the, the, end, the end goal. But... On your sort of roadmap, I guess, just continuing to, to grow in, in Sweden, in the UK, in Paris, do you have your eye on other territories as well? We do, but a lot of our uh, f- expansion efforts right now is expanding within the food value chain as well. So um, uh, while geographic expansion is exciting, we think that the innovation that we're bringing to the market is going to be the real game changer over the next couple of months. Sure, perfect. And I mean, look, Sweden, France, and the UK are pretty big territories, right? To, yeah, uh, there's a lot to do. To, to, to chip away at. Um, fantastic. And what's what's your favorite food? What's uh, as a what do you like to eat? Oof, that's a really good question. It used to be meatballs <laughs> as a Swede, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, but um, now since 2020, I'm a vegetarian, so uh, I'm not allowed. And the vegetarian option isn't as as good? I remembered, meatballs were. Um, <laughs> that's good. I, would, I would probably say falafel. Then. Okay, <laughs> yeah, sure. It, it's a close enough, uh, <laughs> close enough clone of what it is. Plus, it's really good. Yeah, perfect. That was a massive curveball, by the way. I wasn't even going to ask that question until it just popped in my head. It's a good one. <laughs> perfect. And um, I guess just, uh, you know, we, we like to, to sometimes leave. Yeah, these episodes just on, you know, I mean, it's been really positive, to be fair. You know, I think, uh, as I said, so many people are are really interested in what you guys are doing. You know, and one of the reasons why we like to speak to companies like Karma and and with people like yourself is that we can really help elevate, you know, your business and, and you can use the platform to... Yeah, just just raise awareness on the on the brand for people who don't know. But um, but you know, on the flip side, there have been so many people that have been in challenging situations through the pandemic. Of course, you know there have been obviously some massive redundancies and a lot of companies, unfortunately. Um, but you know, if there is somebody out there who's you know thinking they've got that kind of concept, but they don't really know how to to maybe start building a company. I mean, would there be one piece of pretty lasting evidence you'd have loved to have had before you sort of set up your own business oh wow um go I'm for sure it there's a few. go for it <laughs> cool awesome yeah, go, go for it and don't be afraid to ask uh, for help i think a lot of uh a lot of founders that i've met are people like myself who are a bit stubborn on that like i know what's best i <laughs> i know how to do this uh but uh the best outcomes is usually when you get some input from someone who knows at least what it's been like during the first couple of years, because it's even though you have your own business idea and everything's sort of uh, your journey, uh, a lot of those uh, parts of the journey are is the same for everyone. Perfect, and yeah, I think it's um, it's a pretty common mistake a lot of people make. You know, when you go from you know whatever you're doing before, whether it was an engineer, a marketer, or you know a business leader, when you set your own business up, there's that belief that you have to know everything and yeah. 
you know, if you're steering the ship, you have to know where to go. Um, but yeah, from, from leaning on people and getting advice, it's, it's so important. So yeah, great, great words. Great words. Thanks. <laughs> um, so look, I mean, are you, you know, if there are sort of startup founders out there or people, you know, who are kind of coming into, you know, into doing something new, trying their own ventures, are you happy for, within reason to, for people to reach out and, you know, maybe ask for some advice whenever you get a spare minute in what is a pretty, <laughs> very busy day? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, uh, I, I encourage everyone to reach out. Uh, I'm, I try to answer all emails, uh, but uh, sometimes I just have to sort of... Uh pass them on to someone who's more responsive than I am. Uh, but uh, definitely, I think, uh, I think my email is public even. Okay, or at perfect. least it seems that way from the number of emails coming in. Yeah. It's published somewhere. It's somewhere. Uh, there is some scraping technology that's probably found there. <laughs> so, probably. Good stuff. But, but no, no, I think, um, you know, you, you, you've, you, you seem like a really sort of humble guy, happy to help. And yeah, Business Witch is doing some great stuff. So I'm sure, yeah, everyone's going to really, really love this one. So, um, Yama, thanks for, thanks for coming on. It was great to, to spend some time with you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Cheers. All the best. Cheers.